Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, good morning. Y'all doing well this morning? Good. Glad that you're here and glad to be back with you. Just want to say from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you so much for your prayers over the last few weeks. We've been facing uh, some unexpected adversity, and we all do in life, right? It's what life is. And uh, Jesus said, don't, don't be worried, don't be discouraged, for I've overcome the world. Aren't you grateful for a, a Jesus this morning that's victorious over every cir- circumstance, every situation? And uh, I'm just so, uh, just so thrilled to be back with you. Uh, I want to say from the bottom of my heart again, thank you so much, family, for uh, your generosity to my family personally. So many of you have brought meals over the last few weeks as my wife's on bed rest. And uh, we, uh, this is my second to last Sunday as a father of two, Lord willing, all right? And so after next Sunday, we'll be going in for a C-section and just continue to keep Meredith in prayer as we are coming down to the wire. And, and I was in the hospital last weekend and got to stream live. And what a powerful, powerful gathering. And um, I don't know uh, if, if you were able to be a part last week, but Pastor Chad continued in our series called Spiritual Warfare with a message called Wiles of War. And uh, in, in and out of my morphine pump, um, I, I'd got some, uh, some, some live stream of what was taking place, and uh, just a powerful word, Pastor Chad, and I appreciate so much just your obedience and authority with which you teach. I, I look in this crowd when I came in, I'm thinking, man, y'all didn't eat enough Thanksgiving, because our people must be hungry this morning, man. Everybody coming to that second gathering, but nonetheless, I'm glad that you are here, and thank you for being here, for opening up space for our second gathering, and I pray that... Uh, that uh, we have an amazing, amazing time together uh, as God begins to speak to us. I want you to grab your Bible if you have it. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, if you'll go there with me. Uh, if you uh, want to, you can go on your smartphone, click Version, the Bible app, and hit events. And right there, all of the message will be for you. I will also put it on the screen because uh, today I want to teach. And uh, there's quite a bit I want to cover, but I want to I teach. A couple weeks ago... Um, I preached to you two weeks ago. I preached to you, and uh, I preached honestly a, a message called "Dress for Victory," but a lot out of my own brokenness. And and folks, I just want to be transparent for the next few moments. When when God begins to kickstart a season of brokenness in your life, you don't need to kick against it. You just need to surrender to it and just be, expect lots of tears. And that's what God is doing in our life and our family right now. You just you just you just don't kick against the goads. If He wants to take you through a season of brokenness. You go through that season of brokenness, but I just found that out of that season of brokenness uh, comes not only your greatest ministry, but God's anointing begins to fill that gap, begins to fill that place. And uh, I've certainly been uh, a testimony of God's faithfulness over the last few weeks in that way. And, um, you know, I just am so excited about all that God has, is speaking to us. And um, when I ministered a couple of weeks ago, uh, I just felt in that time um, that God wanted to shift and make a transition and, uh, and speak today much more in a teaching manner. And uh, I, uh, I came across this parable, and it wrecked my life as an 18-year-old at Lee University. This is one of the first parables that I began to, God began to use to teach me a truth that we want to share today. And since then, uh, as I've been preparing for this series, God began to redirect my attention back to Matthew chapter 13. And it's been such an encouragement to me. I've always made it my ambition as a pastor to have an encouraging ministry. I want to be an exhorter. I want to be a son of Barnabas. We can all be sons of Barnabas, right? We can all be encouragers. Encouragement's like oxygen to the soul. It really is, particularly in a culture like ours that's so cynical and so pessimistic. And so I pray this is an absolute encouragement to you today because it's a subject that's not often taught on, particularly when we think of spiritual warfare. Normally, when you and I think of spiritual warfare, we immediately think of the the spiritual warfare we go through personally. We think of us carrying our cross and the trajectory Jesus has laid out before us and the path that he's calling us to. We think of the difficulties. We think of the warfare. We think of the attacks that the enemy brings against us. Sometimes we think of that in our corporal life, our corporate church life. But today I want to talk about a message that I'm just entitling, The Enemy's Plot to Spoil God's Work. The enemy's plot to spoil the work of Almighty God. If you'll pray with me, 
Let's ask God to, uh, to touch the, and add blessing to his word. God, you've obligated yourself to hear the cries of your children. And I thank you in these moments that, Lord, you're going to speak. And I pray you, the good sower, Jesus, would sow the word of God into our hearts and let it produce a harvest 30, 60, 100-fold. Let us be that 100-fold, God. Let us be the 100-fold that the word, God, might uh, produce fruit in our lives in which the world around us, the hungry, destitute world, could eat and realize this is the real thing. Lord, I pray today, God, that you give us ears to hear, give us hearts to obey, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? I want to focus on the Lord's parables in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. This is usually called the parable of the tares or the parable of the wheat. Now, tares, T-A-R-E-S, are weeds that look like wheat until the time of the harvest. Weeds and, and, and tares, which are weeds, and wheat, they look the same until the time of the harvest. And beginning in verse 24, I want to read to verse 30, and then I want to pick back up in verse 36, where fortunate for the preacher, somebody said amen, Jesus explains the parable, so I don't got to explain it. He explains it for us. He tells us this is what it means. So let's begin verse 24. Jesus told them another parable, the Bible says, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, in his field, the man's field. But while the man's men were sleeping, his enemy, that's the man, the sower's enemy, came and sowed tares, weeds among the wheat. And then he went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares or weeds became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Do you want us to go pull up the tares? Do you want us to get rid of that which has been planted by someone other than yourself, sower? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, the weeds, you may uproot the wheat, the children of the kingdom, with them, he says. Allow both of them, allow weeds and wheat to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, he said, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, notice that. Gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the disciples were a bit concerned over what he was talking about, so they did what you and I must do as believers. You know what that is? We have to ask a question. In fact, the questions are what matters. We've got to ask the question, so they asked the question, Right? And by the way, if you're in this room and like me, you've been guilty before of criticizing, condemning Peter for all the questions and all the interruptions in the Gospels, can you just tell the Lord right now, I'm sorry? All right, because about 70% of the Gospels would be gone if Peter didn't ask questions, okay? I mean, all of the content really centers around the questions, the interruptions that the Apostle Peter gives. So now we begin to... Uh, Verse, verse 36, I'm sure if you've noticed in your own study, if you look at chapter 13 in your Bible, verse 1 says that that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. So all verses 1 through 36 are in public. Now we're going to switch to the house. That's so key to what we're talking about today. So verses 1 through 36 are all in public ministry. Now Jesus is going to transition into the house. He's going to take into the house, not the public, he's going to take into the house his disciples. And he begins in verse 36 to now explain what he just told them in the parable. Then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him. And they said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field, Jesus. And he said, oh, okay, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, the daughters of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. The harvest is the end of the age. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers at the end of the age are not people. The reapers at the end of the age are not preachers. They are the angels, he said. They are the angels. He goes on and say, the Bible says, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. Now, folks, that takes care of the seven basic elements in the parable. He explained what each of the elements were. 
He goes on and says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, gather out his kingdom, the stumbling blocks. Those who commit lawlessness will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous, the righteous sons and daughters will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And what I want to do today is I want to approach this parable from three different perspectives. First of all, the setting of the parable. Then I want to look at the wording of the parable. That's the seven basic elements the Lord used. I want to see what they mean. I want to see what they imply. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, we'll move from setting to wording and then to the living or the application of the player parable. Because listen, you don't get the blessing by hearing the word. Did you know that? You don't get the blessing by understanding the word. Can I say that again? You don't get a blessing by hearing and understanding the word. You get a blessing by doing the word. A lot of people in our churches are fooled into thinking that they are spiritual because they have a lot of head knowledge of the Bible. They think they're spiritual because they know a lot of scriptures. No, my friends, the mark of a true Bible student is not a big head. It's a burning heart. Jesus, when he opened the scriptures to him in Luke, uh, in in the road to Emmaus, he said, the, the disciples said, did not our hearts burn within us? When he opened the scriptures to us, not our heads grew bigger when he opened the scriptures to us. Our hearts burned within us. So I trust that all of us in here will get a burning heart by the Holy Spirit today. And when we leave here, we want to practice these things. So let's look at the parable. Let's look at, first of all, the setting. The setting. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing to take a portion of Scripture and isolate it from its context, right? When I took homiletics in school, uh, homiletics, the study of preaching or teaching, uh, my great professor would always say a text without a context is a pretext. You know that. Uh, If you take text out of context, all you're left with is a con, right? All you're left with is a con artist. So you can't take a, a, a Scripture, a passage, and pluck it up out of the text and then begin to interpret it the way we want. No, we have to look in the context. This is never more true than chapter 13. What's happening in Matthew chapter 13? Let me give us a picture. We have the climax of a turning point in Christ's earthly ministry. This, in fact, for Matthew is the greatest chapter in terms of how the the, the climax begins to build. The turning point of Jesus' ministry is happening right here. You say, what's, what's just taking place? Well, in chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ sends out the disciples on an evangelistic tour. It's one of the first evangelistic tours, and he says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to people at dwelling place. I don't think any of us are Jews in here. But he said, go to the lost sheep of, of the house of Israel. God would not allow them to go to Gentiles. Jesus commend, commanded them to not go to any Samaritans, not go to any Gentiles, but only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's why the Bible said, by the way, he came unto his own world and his own people received him not. The Jews received their Messiah, Jesus not. That's chapter 10. Now you get to chapter 11, and John the Baptist, who is the cousin or the forerunner of Jesus, is arrested. He's arrested by Herod, and Herodias' daughter wants his head on a platter the next morning when the, when the dancer comes in and dances for King Herod one night. But, but, but it, when, when John the Baptist is arrested, and John the Baptist is ultimately beheaded, There's not one bit of evidence, church, that any Jewish leader lifted a finger to get him justice at all. Not one single Jewish leader did anything on behalf of John the Baptist. You see, there are in history, uh, the history of Israel, three critical murders. I want to talk about those for a minute. If you've studied the Gospel of Matthew, you know where I'm about to go with this. This is the three major murders in the history of Israel. They're critical. The Jews permitted John the Baptist to be killed. They asked for Jesus to be killed, and then they themselves killed Stephen. Notice that. The Jews, responsible for all three. People say you're anti-Semitic. No, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not anti-Jew. That's not the point of this message at all. I want you to see how chapter 13 is the turning point. Okay, And each of those murders was the turning point. Why? Because when they allowed John the Baptist to be killed, they sinned against God the Father who had sent John the Baptist. When they asked for Jesus to be killed, they sinned against the Son who, who was sent for them, who had come to them. And when they sinned against or killed uh, Stephen, they sinned against the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the last thing he said, do you not always resist the Holy Spirit? And so now within these three murders, they have now rejected 
understood fully what God was attempting to do through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so God just took the gospel and he moved it to Samaria and to Samaritans and the Gentiles and the rest of the world. Now, God's purpose from the outset was for all the world to be saved. But I'm just giving you a picture of how God did this. He took the gospel now to the Samaritans. He took them to us. He took them to the rest of the world. That's why the Bible says in Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus speaking, he said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and be given to a people who will produce its fruit. It's going to be taken from you, Israel. It's going to be given to people that will produce fruit. So John the Baptist is arrested. He's pointed to Jesus. Now, that's chapter 11. Now, chapter 12. Jesus is now accused of being in league with the devil. He goes to a demoniac one day, a demon-possessed man, and he heals him. And the enemies come and say, uh, which are the scribes and Pharisees, and they say, he does this by Beelzebub, that means Satan. He cast out Satan by Satan? And Jesus said, are you crazy? How illogical are you? You have flunked logic 101, right? Like how illogical are you that Satan, if Satan is casting out Satan, he's dividing his kingdom. By the way, did you know Satan had a kingdom? Yeah, of course he has a kingdom. And listen, how can Satan cast out Satan and maintain his own kingdom? You have to have a king in a kingdom for a kingdom to be a kingdom. And so if you cast yourself out, you can't be a king in the kingdom, which would make you have no kingdom. So Jesus is now using logic and saying, are you guys crazy? What's going on? That's chapter 12. Then at the end of chapter 12, they ask him for a sign. You want to study, just go read through this up to these point in parables. They ask Jesus for a sign and they say, we want a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus, and we'll believe. Which, by the way, parenthetically, I'll say is not biblical at all. You never see and believe. You believe and then you see. John chapter 3, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You only see after you believe. Sight always follows belief in the kingdom of God. Belief precedes sight. So Jesus didn't give him a sign. He's not going to do that. Then his earthly family shows up at the end of chapter 12, and he doesn't go see them. They're outside. They say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. Would you go see them? And Jesus doesn't go see them. So now he ends chapter 12, verse 50. If you have a Bible there in front of me, you, you notice this. He says these powerful words before we write into this chapter on parables. And he says these words, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Our Lord is saying, I belong to a new family. Can I say dwelling place? Isn't that marvelous? You and I sitting in our chairs today, we can be a brother, a sister, a mother in the family of God, a brother, sister, or mother. Now, in chapter 13, we come to this turning point. Why? Because it's obvious Israel will not accept their Messiah. We've come to a turning point, so now Jesus is going to introduce the W-O-R-L-D. He's going to introduce the gospel to the world. The gospel not just for the lost sheep of Israel, but now for the whole world. So it's amazing. Why does he give us eight parables in chapter 13? 13, that's a great question. Why does he give us parables? By the way, Jesus didn't invent the parable. Rabbis used them for centuries. Rabbis were teachers in the Jewish religion. Um, one of my teachers at Lee, his name was Todd Hibbert. He put me on uh, a book we had to read for class, uh, the rabbinical writings. And if you've never read the rabbinical writings, you can find them online. Most of them are free, but they're very, very, very interesting. And to me, have always been a great sense of humor. There was one story in particular I thought about it again this week. Disciples come to a rabbi one time, and they asked him, hey, how come when I ask you a question, you always answer with another question? And the rabbi, the rabbi looked at him and said, why shouldn't I? Right? I mean, you can go on. You want some clean family fun. There's a, they still tell a story of a poor rabbi. This, this rabbi is poor. I mean, which most rabbis are, right? The son of man has no place to lay his head, he said, right? Very poor rabbi. He was awakened one night, and he said, who's there? In the dark. And a voice came and said, A burglar. And the rabbi said, what are you looking for? He said, money. He said, oh, oh wait, I'll get up and help you. you know? <laughs> he, he has no, the, the rabbinical teachings have some funny, funny humor in it. All right? The rabbis used parables to teach the disciples truth. You say, why? Well, Jesus here in verse 2 of chapter 13 was talking to a large crowd. Verse 2 says, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sent it while all the people stood on the shore. Now, you and I as disciples, if we were in that demand of disciples that day, we would be really happy. You know why we'd be happy? It's because we're happy about this big crowd. Look at this big crowd around us. Listen, I would just say here, 
I have no problems with crowds, provided you know what you're doing. We want crowds in our church. You know why we want a crowd in our church? Not so that we can count people, but because people count. And people in our city need to hear the word of God and need to be ministered to. So, of course, we want people. We want crowds. But you can't measure ministry that way. You can't measure ministry. Look at verse 39, by the way. Can I remind you? Because some of you, maybe you're in the season of discouragement. Let me remind you what Jesus said in verse 39. He says, the harvest is the end of the age. I want you to say that with me. Say, the harvest is the end of the age. Can I remind us, the harvest is not the end of a Sunday. Can I remind us, the harvest is not the end of year one in church planning. Can I remind us, the harvest is not the end of a great season. The harvest is not the end of one service. The harvest is at the end of the age. And at the end of the age is the only time we'll find out whether we really had wheat or tares. It's at the end of the age we really find out whether or not people were planted as sons of the kingdom or sons of the enemy. Paul said, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, judge nothing before the time. That, my friend, should be hung up in every church in America. Judge nothing before it's time. Nothing. So why does he speak in parables? Two reasons. I'm going to give them to you. Number one, because something was wrong with the crowd. Here was the Jewish people. All of them have essentially been raised on Old Testament law. That means this Old Testament law governed all of their life. Okay, They were all raised on the law. They knew the law of Moses. And it governed them. They knew it. But Jesus said, even though you know it, you have serious, serious problems. Look at Matthew 13 and 13. If you have your Bible there open. Notice what he said to him. This is why I speak to them in parables, Jesus said. Though seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they do not hear. And they do not understand. Why did Jesus give parables? To hide the truth? Well, from some people, yes. The religious leaders thought they knew everything, and yet it was fishermen and humble people who saw the truth and received it. That's why he said in the scripture, I thank God that you have hidden these truths from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to who? To babes, he said. To babes. So this is a blind crowd. He's looking out at a blind crowd, and the whole crowd couldn't see what? What could they not see, Craig? They couldn't see all the things around them that God had put there to teach them, put them to teach them the truth. What did Jesus talk about in Matthew 13? Well, there's eight parables. Let me just hit them real quick. Review the chapter. He talked about seeds. Every Jewish hearer who heard Jesus speak knew about sowers but yet they did not see or they did not understand. He talked about soil. Every person who heard him knew about soil, but yet they still did not understand. He talked about birds. Every person who heard him knew about birds. He talked about harvesting. Every person in the crowd knew about harvesting, yet they did not understand. He talked about weeds in the fire. Every person knew about taking weeds and putting them in the fire, yet, yet they did not understand. He talked about yeast being put into the dough. All of them knew yeast put into the dough, yet they didn't understand. He talked about buying a pearl of great price. They all knew about selling a field to buy a pearl. All of these objects and all of these activities, these Jewish people had seen. Did you know that God is preaching sermons day in, day out, all year long, and people in our nation don't see it? I watched the sun come up yesterday. And I watch the sun go down, and yet the majority of our nation never stops and thinks, one day I may be in darkness. It's winter time. It was a first frost. My kids thought it snowed this morning when we left the house. The harvest is over. The winter comes. The cold soil, nothing grows. It's hard. How many people stop and say, my, my heart is so cold and hard? Nothing growing. In thousands of ways, friends, God is talking to people with what he's put on the earth, and people can't see it. That's why they can't hear the word of God, by the way. You ready for this? Not only are they blind to what God is saying, they're deaf to what God, or not only the blind to what God is showing, they're deaf to what God is saying to them. You ever went to school in elementary school, you had a show and tell day? You remember show and tell? Listen, God was the inventor of show and tell. You know why he used the show and tell? God's telling people through the word of God and God's showing them through the world he put them in and they can't put the two together. You know what parables are? You ready for this? It's the word of God being spoken and it's the world being shown and God intertwines them. That's a parable. And people still can't put the two together. They're not able to see it. And the wise and prudent 
We're proud of their knowledge. Listen, there's nothing wrong with going to school. You know I'm a school advocate. I'm a great advocate for higher education. But I meet some people, to be quite honest with you, who have just studied themselves stupid, if you know what I'm saying. Right? I mean, just studied themselves stupid. There are students, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, have no intentions of ever graduating. Did y'all know this is a phenomenon? At Lee, you had like a nine-year degree, a 14-year degree, a bachelor. I mean, it's crazy. People on the intramural field for life. I mean, how many years of eligibility you got, right? I mean, they've been playing for 17 years, never graduate. I was on campus at Lee University, so I went to one of the fathers of a son who was in our church who had been in school for many, many times, and I asked a man, I said, uh, what will your son be when he graduates? He said, an old man. And I said, well, that's not a good degree. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't, you don't don't want to be in school that long, if you understand. And, and so why did, why did Jesus speak in parables? In order to arouse this curiosity. But second reason why Jesus gave parables for the sake of his disciples. Now, if we were disciples, we'd look up and say, it's a privilege to be a part of a ministry that's successful. Look at Jesus and his success. And Jesus was saying, I'm sowing the seed of the word of God. But listen, disciples, most of it will not bear fruit. Listen, hone in. This is what Jesus is saying. You look at the crowds and you think they're a success, but I already know, because I just told you the parable of the sower, which is before this, that only 25% of the seed will take root. The rest of them have cold hearts. The rest of them have shallow hearts. The rest of them are choked out by the deceitfulness and the, the cares of this life. The weeds overtake them. Jesus was saying, watch out with that word success. And Jesus looked up and realized not everyone's listening was wheat. Some were tares. In fact, one of the own disciples was a... Right there that day, his name was Judas Iscariot. He was a tear, and nobody knew it. You want to take a sobering thought? Put this in your pipe theologically and smoke it tonight. You ready? Don't do that really, okay? But, but it's just a phrase, just a, just a phraseology. Judas Iscariot heard every one of Christ's sermons. In the seventh of the eighth parables in this chapter, the parable of the dragnet, he says, throw a big net, all kinds of fish. Will come in, then they're separated. We're not to worry about separation now. He said, plan all of them. Don't uproot the tares because that's going to happen at the end of the age. Now, I've always been an encourager. I told you that at the beginning. But can I just say something here from a pastor's heart? Not every big crowd is a mark of success. That doesn't mean we're going to work harder and harder to have fewer and fewer, by the way. But it does mean we're not going to be proud of that which someday we may be embarrassed about. So two things to remember as we move into the wording. Number one, Jesus is not talking about the local church. I think they have that. Jesus is not talking about the local church. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. What do you mean? He's talking about that wide sphere of all things that are done in the name of Christ. Listen to me, good and bad, true and false. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this is, uh, I guess suppose the best word we have in our English language would be Christendom. Everything that happens on planet earth right now in the name of Jesus, this is what he's talking about, the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew 18, which is the story uh, where Jesus lays out for what to do in a local church. In 1 Corinthians 5, God says to the local church, he's talking about what's going on in the local church. But Jesus is not talking about local church here. He's talking about what's going on in the world in the name of Jesus. Number two thing I want you to understand, in this parable, Jesus is not dealing with the problem of evil. Listen, this is so important. I'm going to spend the rest of my time here. Jesus is not dealing with the problem of evil in terms of spiritual warfare in the world. He's dealing... Not with evil as a whole, right? No, no, no. Th that's, that's a big problem, the problem of evil. We know it's a big problem. There have been philosophers for ages that have written about the problem of evil. I had a professor at Lee, his name was Dr. Cross. He made us read multiple philosophers on the problem of evil. And, and, and be honest with you, I really didn't understand a lot of what they were saying. I don't think they understood what they were saying, if you've ever tried to read philosophy before. I never, heard, I never forget Harry Reimers once said, he said, a philosopher is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. And the trouble is he finds it. <laughs> Have you ever been around them before? I mean, I'm not talking about philosophy here, okay? Not dealing with the problem of evil in the world. He's dealing with one specific truth, and I'm going to sum up the whole sermon with one succinct sentence. Here it is. This is the one truth. This is the one lesson of the whole parable of the tares. Our Lord is simply teaching that wherever he plants a true child of the kingdom, the devil comes along and plants a counterfeit right there. Anytime we start moving forward in the kingdom of God, anytime we are planted where Jesus wants us, then the enemy sees the 
movement. He sees the planting and he comes and plants a counterfeit. He comes and plants a false believer in that place. That's the whole teaching that I give you today in one succinct sentence. The devil is a neighbor. Some of you say, my next door neighbor. No, 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 your next door neighbor. I don't know, maybe they are. G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy, he said, the reason God commands us to love our enemies and neighbors is because probably they're the same person. Well, that's not the case, okay? I, I, had, I had a neighborhood scuffle yesterday. Woke up, walked outside, and, and people had been, uh, we have new neighbors. And uh, I'm trying to get to know this new neighbor. He, he gave my wife a little window to put in her house the other day. And, and, uh, but he went and showed me his phone the other day. And when I looked at his phone at this picture of this car he wanted to show me, the, the text message came from the bottom and it said, I'll meet you to smoke some more weed at 3 p.m. And he just left it there, right? And so this guy desperately needs the Lord. They, they, 3 o'clock in the morning the other night, I heard wheels screeching and she was on the front porch throwing his stuff out the house. I mean, launching it out into the front yard, just launching his stuff. And so I'm trying to get to know my neighbor right now, but yesterday we had needles all over the, the parking lot. And um, it's pretty amazing, right, where, where we live and, and, and what, what's going on in our context. And so, so, so the, the neighbor is not your next-door neighbor. The neighbor is the devil in this parable. God plants a son of the kingdom. The enemy comes and plants a son of his kingdom, a false believer, a counterfeit believer. He sees the children of, of the kingdom have been planted, and he comes along and plants a counterfeit. Now the wording of this parable. What does God want us to do so the enemy's not successful? What does God want to do? That's our takeaway today. Well, we have an enemy. We're to be sober. Sober, sober. Not solemn, by the way. Do you know there's a big difference between being sober and solemn? You ever met solemn believers? It's one thing to walk around and look like a cheerleader for an accident. You ever seen people like that? You know, I think my old pastor used to say, you're a cover girl for the book of Lamentations, you know? You're just, you're just totally solemn. I'm not talking about solemn. I'm talking about Sober. You know what that means? Serious. Vigilant. Why? Because we have an adversary. He's a neighbor, but he's an adversary. He's not a friend. What does he go about? Seeking whom he may devour. Sometimes he comes as the serpent, Genesis 3, who deceives. Sometimes he comes as the lion, Pastor Chad preached last week, who devours. But listen to me. The devil never kicks a dead horse. The devil never beats up a dead horse. I meet some of my preacher friends sometimes, and I say, how's the ministry growing? How's the church going? They're like, oh, great, great. It's going amazing. No friction. No friction at all. I'm like, no friction, no motion. You know what I'm saying? Can I just make a pastoral confession to you real quick? I'd be afraid if the devil wasn't fighting our ministry. I would be absolutely chilled to the bone if the enemy of our souls was not fighting our ministry. He never kicks a dead horse. Some people say, I have no resistance. Well, you may have no resistance because you and the devil are walking in the same direction. But when you begin to move towards God's purpose, you begin to advance God's kingdom, then all of a sudden you're met with resistance. So look at verse 37. He goes on, and look what he says in explaining this. The one who sowed the good seed is the son. I want to explain each of these in the wording. The one who sows the good seed is the son of of man. The Lord lists the elements of the parable. Number one, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Can I say it this way? Jesus is the sower. Jesus is the sower. The kingdom came by the sowing of the word of God. Hey, we're a quick point right here. I just give it to you for free. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, the four hearts, the four soils, Jesus never said the kingdom of heaven is like. You know why he didn't? Because it wasn't the kingdom of God yet. Why? Because Jesus came and sowed the seed, and out of the seed being in the ground came the kingdom. Now he can say the kingdom of God. And so what's taking place in Matthew chapter 13 is Jesus is saying, I sowed the word of God by Jesus when he came to the earth. When I came to the earth, I was the seed. If it's interesting to read Matthew chapter 1 through 12, and if you're able to be here for the month of December, man, don't miss it. Pastor Chad told you you're doing a series called The Original Christmas Playlist. Um, does Christmas just mean busy to you? If it does, slow down. God's made my family slow down the last few weeks. And here's what I want to do. I want us to put our hands together, and we're going to walk up to the manger together again. And we're going to look at Jesus and every song that's sung about our Savior. We're going to pause, take time. It's interesting to know all the distinctives of every title Jesus has given in Matthew up to this point. Can I give them to you real quick? Matthew, the Bible says, verses 1 through 12, Where is he born, king of the Jews? Jesus is the king. 
I used to teach very much in error, and I'm sorry, and obviously I've repented and gone back and even tried to change this, but I used to teach this when I was a new believer. While the Lord was on the earth, he's the prophet speaking for God. Now he's up the priest in heaven that's interceding for us, and one day when he comes back, he'll be the king. Well, that's just not true. He's the king right now. He's the king right now. He is the king of Melchizedek, or king of righteousness. He's not reigning on earth yet, but he will one day. Aren't you glad about that? He's the king now. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist said Jesus is the judge. So look, he's king. Now he's judge. What do you mean? Matthew chapter 3, just what John the Baptist said. He said the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. The root of the tree. John the Baptist, by the way, and Jesus were radicals. Everybody say radicals. You know what the word radical means? Radical comes from the, the Latin word radix. You know what that means? Radish or root. Woe be to the congregation whose preacher only plucks off the twigs on the branches. we got to get to the root. We've got to get to the issues. We can't be people in the kingdom of God today that only deal with twigs. we got to get to the root. Jesus is the judge. That's a radical. Radicals cut the root. They go after the root. They go after the root. Matthew 5, 6, 7 is, is called the Sermon on the Mount. He's the teacher. So look, you got king, you got judge, you got teacher. Now we're told he's the sower. So king, judge, teacher, sower. Let me drop this thought in your heart. You can meditate on it later. When Jesus came to this earth, friends, he should have come as a reaper. He should not have had to have been a sower. You say, what do you mean, Craig? Yeah, the Jewish nation enjoyed hundreds of years with incredible years of ministry through Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They had all the Psalms, all the prophets, all this seed, but no fruit. Do you remember when Jesus walked into Jerusalem one day? He looked at a fig tree, had no fruit. It only had leaves, and he cursed it. Pause. Imagine being the creator of the world, and you walk up on a plant, and there's nothing but leaves. That's sad, and that's what Jesus does when he looks into our churches a lot of times. People who are bearing no fruit. The field is the world, so Jesus is the sower of the fields of the world. Look at verse 24. He says, Jesus told him, parable of the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Notice that. Look at verse 27. The, the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Who? The field is the world. The world doesn't belong to the devil. Can I just say real quick, Satan does not own the world. I want to say it again. Satan does not own the world. Yes, he is the prince of the power of the air, and he's the ruler of the world system, but he's not the ruler of the earth. He's not the ruler of the world. That's why the Bible says the earth is the and the fullness thereof. Jesus is Lord and owner of the earth. It is his. Satan is a trespasser. He's an interloper. This is not his world. You say, how do you know it's not his world? Because God made it. All things are made by him. All things are made for him. And, and the Bible says for his pleasure they exist. I wonder how many times the Lord looks down and how much pleasure he gets when he looks down at this world and he sees Christians fighting each other about policy and politics. I was in Brazil a couple years ago, and I know joke, there's churches everywhere, and they have church every day. I was driving through, and I looked, and there's a sign on the church that said, the original church of God. I got done preaching. I kid you not, went to the other side of the town, and I saw a church on the way to preach to another, and it said, the original church of God, number two. <laughs> now, I'm not beating up Brazil, because we have it too, but Christians just fighting each other. And that's not existing for the sower's pleasure. He's the sower of the seed, he's the owner of the field, and he's the Lord of the harvest. <laughs> this is Jesus right here in this parable. Sower of the seed, owner of the field, Lord of the harvest. And someone has sown weeds in the field. Isn't it interesting that the servants were so greatly disturbed by the presence of the weeds, and they instantly wanted to do something about it, and impetuously, if they would have pulled them up, you know what they would have done? They would have ruined the whole harvest. They would have pulled out all of the weeds. Can I just say it's good for us to go and wait and go to the Lord of the harvest for our orders? Listen to me. If you're in a transition moment in life and you're trying to figure out why you are, where you are, what you're doing in your job, don't act impetuously. Don't act hastily. Go to the Lord of the harvest and wait for his command. Wait for his command. They want to pull them up, and they would have pulled up all of the wheat. Those three give me confidence, King. 
Those three give me confidence. He's sower of the seed. He's Lord of the field. And he's the Lord of the harvest. He is God. You know, as I become older, I'm only 31, but you know what I have to fight? You do too. The older I get, I have to fight becoming cynical. And you do too. Cynical. By the way, we can't really watch the news anymore because the news really isn't news, is it? They're inventing. They're not reporting news. They're inventing news. TV stations are supposed to report. They invent they really do, and it's cynical. You see evil in the church, you see evil in the world, and yet it's easy to get cynical. Listen, don't get cynical. Listen to this pastor. Whatever you do, don't become cynical. Why? It's poison, and it robs you of all the joy and the blessing of serving God. Listen to me. Here's the greatest thing God's, one of, one of the greatest things God's given me on cynicism. When you feel like you're about to start complaining, here's what you do. Stop and start naming all of the things you don't deserve, including the breath that you have to complain. Just start naming everything that you don't deserve, and all of a sudden, complaining is gone. Cynicism's gone. Joy and blessing is ours again. Jesus owns this world. He made it. He bought it with his blood. We have confidence. Satan is an interloper. He doesn't belong here. In fact, everything's out of place. We're out of place. We don't belong here. This is not our home. Our citizenship's in heaven. And listen, in this election, uh, people now that they think they got their candidate, you see them on Facebook, they think, man, I got my candidate. Well, listen, God, God is not have a priority of political reformation. God's priority is redemption, and that's all he cares about. It's not about reformatting or changing the, the guard. It's about redemption. God has a priority. It's redemption. It's not political reformation. It's not of any candidacy. It's redemption. It's the work of his son in the earth. We don't belong here. The devil's out of place. He ought to be in hell. And one day he will be. In this way, Jesus is really not in the right place. Oh, yeah, he's on the throne, but he's called to be on the throne of David on this earth, ruling. And one day, he will be. Everything's out of place right now, folks. But we got this confidence. He's the sower of the seed. He is the owner of the field. And he is the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign. Now, in this parable of the sower at the beginning of chapter 13, the soul represents the human heart. The seed's the word of God, but not in this parable. The field's the world. By the way, the word world, when Jesus said that from his lips, would have shocked the disciples because up to this point, it's just been Jews, 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 the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, but now he said the world. Satan is concerned about the world. He goes to and fro on the earth to the world. Jesus is concerned about the world. Can I speak to some missionary passion people in this room right now? Jesus is concerned about the world, the good seed. Where, where is Christ sowing? In this world, in the field. What is he sowing? He's sowing you. He's sowing sons of the kingdom. He's sowing daughters of the kingdom. Let me say this. The first parable, the parable of the sower, the seed represents the word of God going into hearts. And this parable, the seed represents the people of God. Did you catch that? The first seed is the word. The second seed is the people. Why? Because the word always becomes flesh. You didn't catch that, did you? The word is sent, and then the word produces something that then begins a seed. This is why John 1.14 says the word became flesh. Jesus, the seed, becomes flesh. The word becomes flesh. People carry a Bible under their arm, and they think they're spiritual. People carry a Bible uh, to church when they think they're spiritual. They got a Bible on the coffee table and they think they're spiritual. They got a Bible head in their head. They think they're spiritual. No, 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 no. People, you, you go on, t just click on, on Christian, well, maybe don't do that. And you click on Christian television day. I've been around, I've been to more church services than most of you probably been to the gas station in, in, in the last few years. You, you go to some church services and people literally, I mean, they're saying all kinds of stuff. People are trying to figure out what's What's between the toes of Daniel's image? You know what I'm saying? I mean, crazy stuff. They're trying to pry open the scripture and figure out what this is and what that is and what that looks like. No, though it's good to have it in your head, he said, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against. That's called growth phases. It's not just to teach and to, to minister to your curiosity. It's not just to give you knowledge in your head. It's to change your hearts. It's to change your life. The Lord Jesus Christ compared himself to a seed. John 12, he said, now judgment's in this world. If I be lifted up, I'll draw them into me. That's his crucifixion. The cross was the crushing defeat of the enemy. But guess what the good seed is now, friends? It's us. It's the sons and daughters of the kingdom. 
Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it will abide by itself. But if it goes down in the ground and dies, that's Jesus, it will produce many seeds. That's who? That's us. Now, you and I are seeds. Why does he call us seeds, Josh? Let me give you quick three reasons that I see. He calls us seeds because, number one, seed has life in it. Everybody say life. We have life in who? He who has the Son has life. Why does he call us seeds? Number two, seed has tremendous potential. Did you know a seed has the power to crack up your whole driveway? One seed. Do you know a seed, one single seed in the foundation of your house has the potential of making your entire foundation of your house crack? One seed. But number three, he calls us seeds because seeds produce fruit. Correct me, maybe the Lord will correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Chad will correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to state this statement. I think I'm right. The one solid evidence externally that a person is born again is that they produce fruit. Now, now, that may, now internally, the witness is the Holy Spirit that you're through the Word of God that you're a child of God. But externally, the only single evidence that a person is born again is that they produce fruit. Fruit. If I claim to be a Christian and nothing comes from me, Nothing comes from my life. And remember, fruit is not eaten by the seed. You ever seen a seed come up out of the ground and eat the fruit that the tree produced? So that means we don't eat our own what? Have you ever seen the seed be, uh, the, the fruit be eaten by the tree? No, the, the fruit is eaten by other people. What are you saying, Craig? Our friends and our neighbors are hungry. And they're living on substitutes. They're living on substance. You can go to the drugstore and buy sleep, but you can't buy peace. You can go to the doctor and get some Ambien, but you can't buy rest. You can dial up a phone number or get on the internet and connect with someone and buy companionship, but you can't buy love. <laughs> you can go to the theater and buy a ticket for entertainment, but you can't buy joy. What's the first three fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Only what God can give. We've been on bed rest, my wife has, so we started watching, I don't, don't judge me, The Walking Dead. I had to see what it was all about. Dear God, I'm watching that. I'm only second episode in, and they're chasing these dudes down trying to eat them. I'm like, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 13. People are like, oh, I want to eat. Why? Because they realize something's real. The fruit in your life is to produce for people to eat, for people to come alive. I'm not talking about results, by the way. It's easy to get results psychologically. I don't find the word result in the Bible. I find harvest. And the only way to get a harvest is to plant seed. Maybe you're frustrated where you're at. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm almost done. It could mean God. Two things. If you're frustrated where God has planted you right now, listen to me, seed. You're all seed. I'm seed too. Listen to me. If you're frustrated right now where you're at, here's a couple things. Number one, it could mean that God's about to transplant you. Wait on him. But secondly, if you're frustrated where you are, it could mean that you've forgotten why he put you there. He put you to bear fruit. The good sower knows exactly where he wants to plant his seed in the field. The good sower plants your life into the soil, the world. And wherever Jesus plants the good seed in this world, what has happened? Satan comes and plants a counterfeit. And it's a counterfeit religion. It's blinded people. So I end with Satan. I wanted to talk about God first. That's good, right? So there's two sowers. The Satan's the second sower. You know what he sows? He sows the children of darkness, what we call counterfeit believers. They're tares. Did you know that tares are counterfeit believers? Which tells us that Satan's an imitator. He's not an originator. He can't do anything by himself. He only imitates Jesus. Did you know Satan has a family? It's amazing when you talk about Satan's family, people look at you like, oh my God, I never knew that. Yeah, of course he has a family. You know where his first child came from? Genesis 3.15. You remember when Eve was deceived and Jesus comes to Eve and says, Genesis 3.15, the first messianic promise? He said, I want to put enmity between your seed. Who's that? Mary's seed. Or Adam, Eve's seed, which is Jesus, and your seed. So guess who has seed? Satan has seed. God has seed. Satan has seed. He has seed. The first child of the devil, guess where Satan's family begins? The very next chapter, Genesis chapter four, you know who his son is? Cain. 
Craig, you have no authority to say Cain is. Well, I know I have no authority, but the Bible does in 1 John 3, 12. And the 1 John 3, 12 says, don't leave out Cain who belonged to the evil one. He belonged to him, the seed of Satan, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. They both appeared to be believers, but only one had saving faith. Oh my God, this is, this is the whole point of the parable. They look like on the outside, that, but, but yet when the enemy is ready to, to spoil the work of God, he plants counterfeits. He comes into the midst of God's motion and movement, and he plants his own seed. He plants his own people, counterfeit believers, people who look religious, but yet are literally children of the devil. This is what he says. John 8, 44, look what the Bible says. Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he's a liar. He's a murderer and a liar. Guess who the first child of Satan was? Cain. Guess what he was? He was a murderer. He killed his brother, and he lied. I'm not my brother's keeper. Yes, you are. This is why Satan's tactics never change. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a liar habitually. He's a murderer. All through the Old Testament, there's false religions and worshipers imitating the people of God, but I don't want to go there because I don't have time. I want to go to the New Testament and show you how this is the same in the New Testament because some of you may be objecting and saying, no, he doesn't have any seeds. No, he does. Matthew chapter 3, God planted John the Baptist. So what does that mean? Satan's going to come and plant somebody. Jesus called him the greatest prophet ever lived. John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb before he was even born. Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to where he's baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? That's a good way to grow your church, right? Children of the devil. Can I just say to you real quick, that children of the devil was never used by Jesus one time to refer to a prostitute or somebody who was just a sinner in the world. It was never used to talk about a publican or a reprobate Jew. There's only one crowd that John the Baptist and Jesus ever addressed with that one title. It was the scribes and Pharisees. Who were they? Self-righteous people. Self-righteous people were children of the devil. That's what he called them. Religious. They rejected their Messiah. Matthew chapter 12, they accused Jesus of being in line with the devil. Look what he says in Matthew 12, 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Where did Jesus get that phrase from? John the Baptist. And he calls the scribes and Pharisees children of the devil. Picks up the language. Matthew 23, 15. Matthew 23 is the great woe chapter. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell. As you are, you make them a child of hell as you are. Jesus spoke with anguish. Listen, friends, people say, it's time for Christians to get angry. My Bible tells me that the, the, the righteous anger of believers does not accomplish the righteousness of God. If you're talking about anguish, you need anguish. You know why we need anguish? Because anguish is, is, anguish is anger plus love. And Jesus had anguish. Want to see anguish? Look at Jesus. Look at Jeremiah. So God sowed John the Baptist. The devil sowed Pharisees and scribes. Jesus was sent by the Father. Scribes and Pharisees show up. The last one I'll give you, Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas are in Cyprus. The work's going forward. Acts 13, the, the people are coming to, to Christ. The kingdom of God's going forward. Uh, the Bible says Elimus or Elimus. God plants Paul in Cyprus. You're a child of the devil, he says to Elemas, and an enemy of everything that's right. You're a child of the devil, Paul says. What happens? God plants Paul in Cyprus. Satan plants a child to oppose the work of God. This is the enemy's plot to spoil God's work. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. I can't give you all of these, but look what it is. He gives all this list of things. I've been beaten. I've been uh, danger from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, Paul said, danger in the country, danger at sea, and in danger from... False believers, there it is again, children of the devil, from people who are false believers, hypocrite believers. Wherever Paul went, the children of the devil showed up to oppose the work of God. What does that mean, Craig? We need discernment in the body of Christ today. We need absolute discernment. Ephesians chapter 2 says we were born as children of wrath. Look at me, look at me. We're children of wrath by our nature from Adam. But then you become children of disobedience through choice. Listen, listen. Where do, the, where do the sons of, of Satan come from? Listen to me. You're a child of wrath by birth. You become a child of disobedience by choice. 
But a child of wrath that has chosen to be a child of disobedience can become a child of God through repentance and faith in Jesus. But what happens when you're a child of wrath and you choose to be a child of disobedience, you don't just reject Christ, but you substitute Christ for something else. That's what he's saying as a child of Satan. You're a counterfeit believer. That's what it means to be opposing God's work. How do we become? The greatest problem the church faces today is not the muck and filth of society. Can we please never put that on Facebook again? The greatest challenge we face in the church today is not on the outside. Guess where it's at? It's in the inside. That's why he said in Acts 20 when he left the Ephesian elders, there's going to be savage wolves that are going to come up among you. And they're going to distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. Listen, I'm no disciple of anybody other than Jesus Christ. I don't want any disciples of my own. I want disciples of Jesus. I don't want to draw any disciples after me. It's disciples of Jesus Christ. They're going to draw disciples after themselves from within the church. The Greek preposition antichrist. He's in the world. Anti doesn't just mean against. Anti means instead of Christ. Instead of Christ. So the enemy's the devil. The enemy is the devil. I'll end the message here. Go ahead and come, guys. The reality of the devil. Jesus didn't laugh about the devil. He said, take him seriously. He talks secondly about the enmity of Satan. He's an enemy. He pretends to be a friend, but he's an, he's an enemy. He, he masquerades himself as an angel of light, but he's an enemy. And then number three, the subtlety of Satan. I put this on the, 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 the screen. What does Satan do? He plants a counterfeit because he can't uproot the wheat. Did you know Satan can't uproot you if Jesus has planted you? <laughs> Somebody praise God for that. So what does he do? He comes and plants a counterfeit right next to you. On more than one occasion, I have been listening to preachers. Pastor Chad and I have talked about this many times. And when I was a new believer, I would listen to preachers. And when I did, the Holy, someone spoke and the Holy Spirit didn't bear witness. And something inside of me was going, liar, liar, liar. You know who that was? The Holy Spirit. the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth away from counterfeits so finally the applying we got to be alert friends everybody say alert we must develop with the Holy Spirit a spiritual radar because we live in a world full of deceits number two we've got to watch out for detours I've seen many good ministers ruin their entire ministry by going on detours what did they say master you want us to go pull it up can I make a commitment to you? We as the leadership of this church won't go chasing after every detour because it'll ruin the good wheat. Don't get worked up and think you have to pull. The harvest is the end of the age. Number three, we must be concerned with the whole world. Missionary impulse. Jesus will sow the seed wherever he wants to sow it. And then fourth and finally, don't get agitated like the servants. You need the long view of what God's doing. <laughs> I need the long view of what God's doing. And he gets to the final and eighth parable. And look what he says in John chapter 13, verse 51. This is so powerful, folks. If you haven't heard anything I've said, let this just so soak in your heart. This is how he ends the, the eighth parable of this chapter. He says, the one that we neglect the most, the Bible says, have you understood all these things? He said to the disciples, and they said, yes. <laughs> Which is a totally humorous have you understood it? Yeah. What you want to know, Jesus? You want us to teach you again? And he says, therefore, because when you understand truth, you have a what? Responsibility. And what does he say? Every teacher, scribe of the law, who's become a disciple in the kingdom is like the householder who brings out his storeroom, new treasures as well as old. Notice the sequence. He begins with scribes. He moves to disciples. Then he moves to householders. He's saying to his disciples, you said you understood these things. That means you're a scribe. What do scribes do? Scribes study the word, learn the word, analyze the word, study the word. That's where a lot of people stop. Folks, you can't stop with being a scribe. Notice the sequence. They study the word. They know the word. They believe the word. But he said, now I'm promoting you to being disciples. What do disciples do? They live the word. They practice the word. So notice, you, you don't just a scribe who knows the word. You become a disciple who lives the word. We enjoy being scribes. I like sitting in my office with my book, studying and taking notes and taking lists and taking lists of my lists. But the 
there comes a point where Jesus says, stop it, stop the study, and go live it. Go apply it. Live it out in the world. And after you've practiced it and it's in your life, he says, now he wants you to become a householder. Why? Because the scribe studies the word, the disciple practices the word, but the householder shares the word. This is what God's called us to do, to know the word, to learn the word, to become a scribe, to become a disciple that lives the word, lives out the word, and then we become householders that share the world. And, and, and notice what he says, you're sharing the treasures. 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 Catch that. Treasures. The word of God's a treasure. And he says both old and new. Because we got people today in the church, they don't want anything new. Oh, we don't want the old stuff. And you got people that don't want anything old. I oh, only want new stuff. And he says, when you live the word, and what happens is you start sharing the word. Oh, they need a little bit of old. That congregation, they need a little bit of old. Let's sow them some old. Oh, they need a little bit of new. Let's give them some new. Why? You're pulling out of the treasures. You're pulling out of the treasures as a householder, both old and new. And this is how we defeat the plot of the enemy to spoil the work of God. We keep living. Jesus is the sower. Would you bow your heads? Again. Thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.